0: They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours, or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 17 – Unusual Dentistry and Interesting Memories Do you remember about four weeks ago I went to the magic attic? that amazing archive of newspapers. I was looking at the time for any information I could find on Matthew James Jackson. Well, when I was there, I took the opportunity to look through some of the newspapers from the time of the discovery of the body in 1971 and the following few weeks. And in particular, I was looking for any of the information that the police had released in the immediate aftermath of the body's discovery and some of it was really interesting and I think may have been forgotten about in the sense of it's not in the book that was written and I've never seen it reported since and it concerned the nature of the dentistry now we know how the police searched for months and months and months, unsuccessfully, for a match in dental records, and the length they went to to try and enlist the help of the dental profession in identifying Fred. It was very unusual dentistry, easily recognizable, unique, even. The police, all the way through the early stages of the investigation, thought that the dental records would be the key to this. Now, What I found in those newspapers was why the police thought it was unusual. Why that dentistry stood out as being the key. And it got me thinking. The dentistry is an area in this case that I think we need to look at more closely. Because if we understand the dentistry, and more importantly even, who may have performed that dentistry, I think we may move quite a lot closer to the truth. Let me read you a couple of these articles that I was able to uncover. The first report is from a couple of weeks after the body was found. Unusual features may lead to victim's identity. And it says Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent detectives are hoping that two unusual features of dental treatment received by a man whose remains were uncovered in a shallow riverside grave off Newton Road, will lead to establishing his identity. Local dentists questioned by police after searching their records for details of dental treatment have told them that the replacing of teeth in sockets immediately after extraction and a special type of filling would not normally be carried out unless specifically requested by the patient. The dentist said that whilst replacement of teeth was a normal procedure the particular details of treatment carried out on this man showed that both the upper left seven and possibly the eighth had been replaced and this is unusual because normally a dentist would allow only one replacement to bed in and settle down before doing the one next door to it now that strikes me as important because that's not How a dentist would do it so whoever did this dentistry was doing something a normal dentist wouldn't do and the article goes on and I quote and the use of veined acrylic filling which gives the appearance of natural teeth was also unusual the treatment had only been carried out six months before death this treatment is so unusual that it is possible that this man would have spoke about it to friends or even in a public house. If anyone recalls such a conversation, we'd like to hear from them. A couple of weeks later, there's another story in the Burton Daily Mail that again touches on this subject of dentistry. It says, inquiries are continuing amongst members of the dental profession to identify dental treatment thought to have been carried out at least two years, but not more than three years before the death. The dental treatment has some unusual features, which includes a partial denture which is fitted with two wire supports and fillings which are carried out using a special veined acrylic paste. Local dentists have been unable to identify the treatment as their work and the net has now been spread to take in members of the profession and dental technicians in Derby and surrounding districts. Eventually, we may have to take our inquiries nationally. This man, though, bit behind his bottom teeth. And this in itself helps narrow the field down because only 2.5% of the population display this feature. And that is what was written in those articles. Some of it we knew, the partial upper denture. I think that's what David Nathan saw in the mouth at the time of the discovery. And the fact that the upper jaw closed behind the lower teeth that gave the impression that the lower jaw jutted out, well we knew that stuff. But there was information there I didn't know. I didn't know that upper left 7 and upper left 8 had been extracted and replaced in one procedure. And I didn't know that a specialist type of material had been used. Veined acrylic filling. Now. It's not clear in these reports whether that material was used just for the fillings or for the fillings and the replacements of the extracted teeth, but it was clearly used. The other thing that's clear was in a man that was around 29 years of age, this dentistry was unusual. But more than that, it wasn't just the police that found this dentistry unusual. Dentists thought it was unusual. And what does that tell us? It makes me wonder whether these procedures had been performed by a dentist at all. I needed help on this. I needed to find an expert who could cast a bit more light on what we're looking at here. I'm old enough to remember life before the internet and I don't know how we coped. Well quite happily really. but. I have grown to love it and all the social media sites that make finding people and experts a lot easier than it used to be. I'm on a website called LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a well known site for professional people to connect with other professional people in, in the business world and I've been on it for a long time so I've got access to millions of people through it and it means that I can search. For different specialists in different countries, including forensic dentists. So I found a couple of potential forensic dental experts in the UK who looked like they would have the relevant expertise. So I sent them one of my intriguing messages specifically designed to pique their interest in the case. I must admit, I've completely lost my trepidation when it comes to reaching out to strangers and trying to convince them to help us solve this mystery, and again, I was lucky. One of them got back to me, a forensic odontologist and senior lecturer in forensic odontology. They have a great deal of experience in the identification of human remains from teeth, and they've been involved in hundreds of cases over the years in the UK and abroad, and are listed as an expert witness on Forensic Odontology with the National Crime Agency. Their name? I can't tell you. Why? Because one day they may end up working on this case if this ever gets to that stage, and they would not want their participation in a podcast to get in the way of their involvement with that investigation and that's quite understandable but I had picked wisely because they were very helpful but not quite in the way I was expecting. I started by sending over to our dental expert an email that detailed the dentistry of Fred together with some of the photographs that were taken at the time. I also obviously outlined the basis of the case and how Fred came to be found. I'll read you that email but I'll confine this to the dentistry part of it because you all know the story. The body had extensive dental work including fillings and bridges. He had a partial upper denture with two-wire support which was recovered. The police considered the dental work to be unusual at the time because upper left seven and upper left eight had been extracted and replaced in a single procedure. Dentists advised the police that that was considered unusual because it would be normal practice to allow one replacement to bed in before performing the same procedure on the tooth next to it. The replacements were made from a veined acrylic filling that gave the appearance of natural teeth. Again, the police thought this was unusual because dentists told them the material was unusual. The deceased bit behind his bottom teeth and at the time, that was considered to be a trait displayed only by 2.5% of the population. He had a protruding lower jaw and may have suffered from torticollis, a problem involving the muscles of the neck that it causes the head to tilt down. A couple of days later, I got a reply. It said, Morning Ken. Having reviewed the info and photos, I can only say the following based on the limited information available. The dental work shown in the photos is by no means extensive or unusual for that era, although it's not possible to determine the materials or the denture design from the photos, so there may be aspects which veer from the norm that I can't determine. Veined acrylic denture-based material, though, had been available for years prior to the deceased being found, but would not have been commonly used in the NHS as it was more expensive. If only local NHS dentists were approached by the police, then it would not be unusual for them to indicate the work was rare for Britain at that time. The claim that having two adjacent teeth removed at one visit would be unusual is also a fallacy There's nothing to stop that being done, and it would not affect the provision of treatment. I suspect the only reason for saying it would have been is the payment structure for NHS dentistry at the time, which would have made it more profitable for a dentist to remove teeth in separate visits, adding to or providing a new denture after each extraction. To be honest, the full dental records and photos taken at the time, and ideally the actual remains, would be needed to be made available for examination in order to have any chance to progress this case. Access to the remains would also allow for more accurate age assessment to be conducted using modern methods and also possibly isotope analysis to indicate where he was born and raised and where he may have lived in the time prior to death. I hope this is useful. Kind regards. It was useful because it made me start thinking about how the police had conducted their investigation. I went back with another email. Thanks for your thoughts. They are very much appreciated. A couple of follow-up questions, if I may. Should I deduce from this that there is a greater likelihood that 1. The workers performed outside the NHS in the UK or the work was performed not in the UK or are both of these equally possible? By the way, were there a separate lists of NHS and private dentists at the time and was a dentist one or the other? And finally, would you need to be a qualified dentist to perform this work? Could this possibly have been performed by a skilled amateur or a dental technician? rather than a qualified dentist. I would be very grateful for your thoughts. I promise not to bombard you with lots of questions, but I think the dentistry is key to this. Thanks again, Ken. Once again, I got a reply. Hi, Ken. To answer your questions, the work evident in the photos being black and white doesn't really indicate anything. It's just typical of fillings at that point in time, if they are amalgam. If they're gold, then the work is more likely to be private or outside the UK. But there's no way of telling from the photos. Almost all dentists in the UK in that period would have been NHS. They may have also, though, offered private treatment as well, but there'll be no list in existence of dedicated private dentists and dedicated NHS dentists. Unless the dental work was in gold, I doubt that anyone other than a dentist could have undertaken it, it would have been difficult though not impossible to obtain the appropriate materials and application equipment otherwise. The denture work would have required someone with dental or dental technician training as the tooth alignment, bite setup, acrylic work requires equipment and knowledge that are not available to those without the necessary training and qualifications. In Italy, It's sometimes common for dental technicians to also directly treat patients despite not holding the correct qualification to do so and it's generally ignored by the authorities. My off-the-record feelings on this are that in all probability the police only sought the opinion of local NHS dentists and in that area at that time they would only be used to doing basic NHS work with no consideration of alternative options. So what did I learn from that? Well, quite a lot actually, and quite a lot about the way the police went about their investigation. It's very clear from the pieces in the Burton Daily Mail, the police thought the dentistry was highly unusual, so unusual that they thought this person would be talking about it in the pub. Now, the police aren't dental experts, so they would have been relying on dentists to tell them that. And if dentists were telling them it was highly unusual, that must mean the police only spoke to NHS dentists and not private dentists. And that is really significant because this dentistry was in all probability, performed by a private dentist. We know that because of the materials used and the procedures used. So does this suggest that an over-reliance by the police on NHS dental records, when in fact he was a private patient, may have meant that a very early opportunity to identify him went begging? Thanks for downloading the podcast. Wherever you are in the world, you're very welcome to the family. It's great to have you involved in the investigation. We've now reached the dizzy heights of over 10,000 downloads, and each week that number goes up by another thousand. So a huge thank you to everyone who has helped spread the word. And I know so many people who have shared the podcast with their friends, and I'm extremely grateful for them doing that if you are enjoying the podcast please leave a rating wherever you download it that helps more people discover the podcast i did notice that on apple whilst we've got primarily five out of five so thanks very much for that someone rated it at one out of five i need to find them they might be the killer not really anyway let's get back to the story for the second half of this episode i wanted to talk about the three key lines of inquiry that we've got open at the moment and how I've been able to progress those three areas of investigation over the last week or so. And they are Zoe Kun's recollections. I haven't forgotten about Zoe. Matthew James Jackson. What's the story surrounding his disappearance at exactly the same time as Fred would have been murdered. And thirdly, of course, that letter we received. There's detail in that letter that needs checking out thoroughly. And I think that's the way this podcast is going to progress over the next few episodes. I need to start digging deeper and deeper and deeper into each of these three and to try and uncover anything that's gonna be of use to us. That will be a slow and laborious process I'm afraid I can't promise you that there'll always be a big reveal at the end of each episode. This now is where the grind of investigation takes place. So stay with me on this and we've got to be prepared to be patient and thorough and meticulous. Firstly, let's go back to that letter that we received. And I should say, I've sent a copy of that to the police and I've offered to send the original to them as well. Now, you'll appreciate I'm going to have to tread really carefully here, but I needed to establish some facts that I could either verify or refute the accuracy of that letter. And what information did I have in that letter that I could use to test it with? Well, firstly... I had the name of a family. So the first question I needed to ask myself was, did a family of that name actually live in Queen Street Burton at the end of the 1960s? And obviously if they didn't, that would cast an immediate doubt on the veracity of the letter straight away. Well we got digging on that and it turned out to be true. This family did indeed live in Queen Street at that time and with that information I was able to identify all the other members of that family and secondly the letter names a specific person I'm given a first name and a surname and it states that this person's brother was involved in Fred's demise so another test for this letter to be true is Does that specific person exist and did they indeed have a brother? And again the letter checked out. That specific person did indeed exist and they did have a brother. In fact brothers. So so far so good. Now it does not mean that this family was involved at all but it does mean that the easily checkable facts do indeed check out so I needed to know more about that family and how was I gonna do that well from the research we'd done we knew all the members of that family now we knew their names we knew when they were born we knew who they got married to we knew who they divorced and when they died and I was able to identify a couple of people who had married into that family and then divorced out of it around the end of the 60s and early 70s. Now, I don't know at this stage whether this family were the nicest people in the world. But if I could find the people that had married into that family, maybe I could find out. And, fortunately, I did find them. Anna had a conversation about exactly what was going on in that family in the late 60s. Now you'll appreciate I can't give any names out on this but that conversation confirmed a few things. Firstly all the details that we had in the letter were confirmed by someone who had been inside that family at the time. Now what I don't mean by that is that this family was involved in the murder. The person I spoke to has no idea whether they were or whether they went. But what they were able to do was to confirm that the names in the letter corresponded to the names in that family. And according to that person I spoke to, they were, let's just say, a well-known family. You had to watch yourself a little bit with them. They had a bit of a reputation. There were people you didn't mess with, if you get my drift. Now, that doesn't make them killers. But they weren't saints, either. Secondly, 126 Newton Road and Matthew James Jackson. How could I move that forward? Essentially, I had two potential options. Firstly, from the electoral roll records we knew that the next family to officially live in 126 Newton Road was John Statham and his wife Frieda. They moved in a couple of years after the Kuhn family had moved to Australia. But we also knew that that was the address that was put into the paper when Matthew James Jackson disappeared. So he appeared to be living there when no one was living there. I wanted to find out whether the Statham family who moved into that address knew anything about the previous unofficial tenants. Now sadly, I knew that John Statham had passed away a few years ago. I reached out to some of the family who had told me that to see if I could get hold of Frida and whether Frida could tell me any more about. How the house appeared when they first moved in. But I'm afraid Frida isn't really well enough to remember all the way back then. It was a long shot and only peripheral to the case. But when you're dealing with a case like this, you can't leave any stone unturned. But there was another potential lead. I remembered in an earlier conversation with Zoe Kun that she'd mentioned that she played with a girl that was the granddaughter of the Halstead family who lived in the house next to 126 remember 126 Newton Road is a semi-detached the house next door was occupied by the Halstead family and their granddaughter used to come and play and Zoe played with her that's interesting because after Zoe left that granddaughter would still have been around in that transitional period between the Cun family leaving and the Statham family occupying. I needed to find her. After a bit of searching I did find her and I've reached out to her and I'm hoping that by next time I release a podcast I will have spoken with her. And thirdly it was about time I spoke to Zoe Cun in Australia again. And as always in conversations with Zoe, you always leave that conversation with a lot more homework to do. Hello. Hello, Zoe. Ken Davis here in England.
1: Ah, right. That's why my phone said Derby.
0: Yeah, that's where I am. How are you doing?
1: (laughs) how amazing i had no idea these smartphones did this david gave it to me just a little while ago because we've got some lockdowns and uh, from the from the covid thing i know
0: it's serious isn't it again over in australia
1: well it's not as bad as it is in other places
0: oh good pleased to hear that
1: hey i've got a bobby dazzler of an immune system i'm one of those people where everybody else falls over with yeah, Hong Kong flu, or bird flu, or whatever, and, and I'm as healthy as
0: everything. <laughs> but you've got, so, you, you're into all that kind of stuff though, aren't you, or you're, you're into the, the kind of herbs, and natural remedies, and all that kind of thing. Well,
1: yes, more than anything else. I'm, I'm just one of those really healthy people who don't fall
0: ill to things. Hey, by the way, how's your move going?
1: Well, it's gone. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm now inside my bus. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: Why do I get this vision of Cliff Richard in Summer Holiday when you say that? I mean, is it is this is <laughs> this a, big, a double decker? It's not a double decker. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But it sounds fantastic though. Well, well done you for getting through all that because that sounded like it was a big job.
1: I still haven't worked
0: out who that young man is well that was the, that was the reason well the reason of course was just to say hello and just give you a bit of bit a bit of an update as to where we are but just to see if anything had cropped up in the meantime because I know it's probably probably a month or so since I spoke to you and I thought you know what uh, and I hope it's not too late for you what time is it over there
1: uh it's what, something like 8, 20 to 8, something
0: uh, like that. Okay. But, no, I just yeah. wanted to just, just call and see uh, see if you'd come across anything, any more memories have popped up, just to... Uh, just, no, to...
1: Nothing's, nothing's come up, but I know that there's something in there. I've asked my daughter to contact to contact my mother and see if she's prepared to talk with you, because she might have um, better, better ideas too. Hmm. And I, I sent a um, copy of, of the pictures to her. Okay. In case she she can remember the the young man. Um, Another thing that occurred to me was the people that my dad used to work for at the hairdressing shop. Um, Peter and Graham Stone their names were. Now I don't know what happened to Peter Stone but I know Graham Stone moved here to Kerrang in Australia.
0: Right. Um,
1: It just occurred to me that if Perhaps that young man was a hairdresser. They may remember him.
0: What an interesting idea. Yeah. It and is,
1: I, yeah it's just, just something that came to me, you know, uh, actually only a few days ago. Yeah, Graham, Graham Stone moved to Kerrang. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what happened to Peter Stone. I have an idea that he stayed in Burton.
0: Well, I'll be able to probably be able to find them or descendants of them.
1: Um, just trying to think what Peter's children were called Lindsay and oh gosh I can't remember the other one Um, Graham's children were Annette and Andrew
0: wow what a memory
1: Annette's probably about 55 now Um,
0: and Andrew would be a couple of years older than that Okay. Uh,
1: Lindsay would probably be about 60 I think I thought well it's another avenue if you haven't got, gone that way I haven't. Um, then that's certainly certainly a way of, um, of looking into it if, if the young person was a hairdresser yeah. then um, they may very well have known who he, who he was
0: yeah that's that, that, that's interesting it's uh, one of the things I've been trying to do is I remember you telling me uh, because I'm very interested in your house after you left, and what did I ever? I don't the last. Can't remember the last conversation I had with you. But there's a man called Matthew James Jackson who we think was living there, but was not associated with the mill. Uh, because after you left, the next person who lived in there who was associated with the mill was a man called John Statham, who I've been able to track down. But there's a gap of about 18 months where no one was supposed to have lived in your house. Oh really? Yeah, no one lived in there because if you didn't work at the mill you weren't going to get to live there. So no one was supposed to live there. However, a man went missing and that address was given and that man was called Matthew James Jackson and he went missing at the start of 1970. But he's not Fred, he's not the body but he was a nasty piece of work. Now, this is the man who I think, you remember when you told me Helen Jowett said, a weirdo's moved into our house, your house?
1: Yeah, I I had a vague memory, I think I called her once or twice um, when we were living at North Stratford when we first got to Australia. Yeah. And and I had a vague memory of her saying that that she thought that the fellow was creepy or something along those lines. Yeah,
0: well, I, I trust your memory on that. I spoke to Helen. Lovely lady, mm-hmm. and uh, did sa- she
1: remember the fellow?
0: No, she said I can't remember saying that. I don't remember it, but be, but.
1: Well, I thought it was her that that, that that said that, but it could also have been Fiona, the the girl across the road from from us that I was friends with, was Fiona Webb. i Can't think for the life of me what her married name was because the, the two people i spoke to in in england after i came over here were fiona and helen they're, they're, they were the two i was actually trying to trying to track down um another friend of mine who whose stepfather had uh, somebody they knew in sydney and, and at that time um i was trying to trying to track down this, this uh, I think it was a cousin of his or something, he had a daughter about my age, yeah. um, who was into horses just as I was, and I at the time when I rang the girls up, um, I was trying to, trying to track down this other girl, Julie, to find out what the damn name was, because somewhere in the move from England to, to Australia, I lost the address that, that Mr. Jackson had given me. And Uh, when you said that there was a Jackson living in in the house, that was something that just made me think. I wonder if he was any relation to Julie Jordan's stepfather, Mister Jackson, whose first name I
0: didn't know. Right. Wait. That's important. Go back a step. I need to capture all that. There was a man called Jackson who was a stepfather.
1: Yeah. Um. My girlfriend Julie Jordan.
0: Julie um, Jordan. uh,
1: Was um her mother remarried to Mister Jackson.
0: Um, when? Do you remember when and, that happened? Do you, remember, do you know when that happened, that marriage, that marriage?
1: Well, the marriage happened before I met her. Okay. Um, but uh, they lived in Winshill. But what his first name was, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what, what his mother's name was either.
0: Okay, but, but uh, Julie Jordan was her but, name.
1: But when, when he heard that I was moving to Australia, he gave me the address of his cousin, whose daughter, as I said, was you know, into horses and about my age. OK. And I lost the address, so when we first got here, I did try and you know, try and track her down. Unsuccessfully, she'd apparently left the area at okay. that stage. OK. So sometime, sometime in 1970, I believe, they actually moved
0: somewhere else. OK. Do you, did you ever meet Mr. Jackson?
1: Um... Only once.
0: What does he look like? I don't remember. Okay. I don't have any any. I, I don't remember what, what her
1: what her parents looked like at all. To be honest, I I've actually tried to tried to remember a few times, but no, it's just not there.
0: As you always do, you've given me some more homework to do. The other thing I think that's useful is. Because you left when you did, I know that every memory you have of the UK is of that time. That's what makes these conversations so useful for me because you are not going to confuse it with something that happened two years later because that wasn't in England and you're remembering, and that's that's like me looking through your mental photograph album of 1969 and 1968. And that's incredibly useful. I've got a lot of work to do now. No, brilliant. Thanks, Zoe. You look after yourself, okay?
1: No worries, Ken. Love to talk to you again. See
0: See you soon. Bye-bye. So that was my conversation with Zoe. And as always, I'm left with more work to do. I now need to find Julie Jordan and find out about her stepfather, Mr Jackson. Now, I noticed, I wonder if you did, that date 1970 reappeared, they... Left the area in 1970. Is that a coincidence? It's 1970 that Matthew James Jackson leaves that house. And maybe it was Fiona Webb, not Helen Jowett, who mentioned that a strange man had moved into the old house. And the hairdressers that Frank Cunn used to work for—that's a new avenue to explore that I'd not considered before. And I'm not forgetting that Zoe's friend who lived next door at the other side of the semi-detached house. I need to talk to her. And finally, let's not forget the dentistry that started this podcast. That dentistry intrigues me. This difference between what the forensic dentist said about how available that type of dentistry was and how the police thought how unusual that dentistry was That kind of proved to me one thing. This was private dentistry, which in 1969 was costly and relatively rare. Why, with access to free dental health care on the NHS, did this person require more expensive and cosmetically orientated dentistry? Was that vanity? Or was his appearance so important to him that it required the appearance of of perfection. There's more to discover here. Until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.